0: If you look at the statistics, America has 120 firearms per 100 people. And America, despite uh, having 4% of the world's population, made up 31% of all public mass shootings globally between 1966 and 2012. There's certainly something wrong with this picture. And it doesn't seem to me that any meaningful gun control or gun safety legislation is going to be passed. Even now, even after these people were
1: killed, these children, were poor, innocent children were killed. It's a huge problem because that minority of entrenched gun lovers holds an incredible influence in Congress. Because uh, basically, it's been, the case has been for the last 10, 20 years even, that if you go against the gun lobby, you lose the next election. because they are very, very focused and they're very good at, at
2: messaging. Money is at the heart of all of this. And when the industries are closely related to the development, the manufacturing, the production, you know, and also the research with the whole economy, with every step of the industry, you created a monster. The monster actually have a huge influence in Congress, in the Pentagon, throughout the military. And they're closely intertwined and become a symbiotic sort of biosis that create this synergy uh, to reinforce each other.
3: The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge.
2: The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex.
3: The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. Welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tu What you've just heard was from over 60 years ago when U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower delivered his farewell speech to the nation, warning against the increasing power of the military-industrial complex, which he believed to be a threat to a democratic government. So today we'll be talking about how the U.S. military-industrial complex has been affecting American people's daily lives, the country's politics, and even the rest of the world. Joining our chat today are Harvey Zodan, former vice president of ABC TV Network, Dr. Zhao Hai, research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and David Moser, Associate Professor at Beijing Capital Normal University. Welcome to you all. So let's start with things closely related to people's daily lives, Um, the recent spree of gun violence in the country. David, I understand your daughter is now working in the States after graduation. How worried were you about her well-being whenever, you know, there were reports of gun violence, especially when she was still attending school in the States.
1: Uh, yes, that's true. Um, she Luckily, she spent most of her education here in Beijing, but she was in uh, the United States in the second and third grade in the very, very red state of Oklahoma, <laughs> which was—it's not only a red state, it's also a one of those uh, NRA-type states where, where, where there almost is a kind of a gun fetish. I think probably everyone on... The block where my mother and father were living had at least had one gun, if not many. So yeah, of course, and that was a time when there were some uh, some mass shootings uh, in, a little bit earlier than Sandy Hook, but there had been uh, lots of school shootings then. So of course, uh, we you know it was very worrisome, extremely worrisome, and uh, the school she was going to you know was uh, very open. I mean, you know, parents came in and out. I don't even think anyone thought of security guards at that point. It was just a kind of a small town. But as we know, some of these shootings can happen in small towns, actually. They're not limited to metropolitan areas. So uh, I'm very much happier to have her. Uh, She's in in New York City (laughs) now, which is not that much more comforting. But she is an adult, and so she knows how to take care of herself. So at least I'm a little less worried now. But yeah, it was a very trying period of time to think of her there in school.
3: Harvey, you you are now living in Austria, but when you were still in the States, did you have any chance to buy or did you buy any guns for self-protection?
0: No, I never owned a gun in the States, and I'm happy that I didn't because uh, people who own guns are involved in lots of gun accidents. But I had an interesting experience a couple years ago going to visit a friend in Wisconsin, in a rural area, not far from Milwaukee. And uh, I met this friend in um, Beijing years ago, and uh, he was the president of a small family-owned company. And uh, he's a former Marine, so I shouldn't have been surprised, but I went to visit him and stayed overnight with him. And I felt quite safe because he had over a hundred guns in his farmhouse.
3: A hundred?
0: That were both collector guns, a hundred, over a hundred. Some were like historic, like from the time of the American Revolution. Uh, But uh, many were very much up to date, like the AR-15, which my son had a great time firing in uh, the firing range at the farm. But I was horrified. And uh, this is not... uh, So unusual because in America, as we know too well from the last couple of weeks, there's uh, over 400 million guns, enough uh, and then some for every man, woman and child in America.
3: Dr. Zhao, during the days when you studied or worked or uh, lived in the States, did you have any chance to own or buy a gun?
2: No, I can't. Uh, The law forbids uh, foreign students to take ownership of guns. And also, I'm not interested in owning a gun because I think violence invites violence. And in most of the cases, uh, according to studies, that actually uh, people uh, are more likely to get shot if they own a gun. So I think in many cases, the environment is more dangerous than... uh, Even if you own a gun, you may not be able to use that uh, to defend yourself. Uh, Some of the people in the rural area are using guns for uh, recreational purposes. Uh, But in urban area, using guns are very extremely dangerous because it's very easy to get third party hurt uh, during a gun battle. I was in the uh, south side of Chicago, as you can imagine. Um, I experienced gunshots almost every day. It's not far from me. And every time when the night falls, you can hear gunshots fired in the remote areas, uh, in the neighborhoods, uh, outside of the university campus parameter. And you can can think about, uh, you know, uh, gangsters are fighting with each other using guns. And sometimes it's so fierce, the police cannot even intervene. So I think it's very problematic when you have so many guns in society, and in particular, when these guns are not in safe hands and, and people can easily get a gun without registration. and uh, even though some cities have imposed very strict gun laws, like Chicago, it used to be, like Washington, DC, and other cities. But you know, criminals can always smuggle guns into the city and hurt people. Uh, just after, I think the second term, uh, when Obama started after the inauguration, uh, a very young girl who participated in the uh, inauguration was gone down just uh, two blocks away from where i lived and uh, uh, when i woke up the second morning i heard the story it's very saddening and then the church hold a funeral for her and and it's it's very sad to hear that a young life ended that way
3: obviously people have plenty reasons to to fear for their Um, safety. And you just mentioned uh, Obama. And um, if if I remember correctly, rules were tightened in in some states over gun purchases after um, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, where 27 people were killed in Connecticut in 2012. And that's during Obama's term. Uh, And uh, after that, uh, some gun control measures, as I just mentioned, were introduced, but what has gone off track since then, Harvey?
0: Well, the problem is much older than that, and uh, it has gotten progressively worse. So um, we have the Second Amendment to our Constitution, and for over 200 years, it was interpreted as being limited, the right to bear arms was limited to Uh, members of state militias, which are like uh, kind of uh, state controlled National Guards. But a few years ago, in 2008, the uh, Supreme Court has become more conservative, uh, thanks to the Bushes and uh, thanks to Donald Trump, although he was in office after, but in 2008, because conservatives had funded millions of dollars of academic uh, research and also gave money to political action committees and to conservative candidates, the Supreme Court overturned the 200 years of of precedent and uh, started to allow uh, private individuals to have guns. In that particular case, it was uh, having guns at home. That was the Heller case, but now, There's a case before the Supreme Court that involves New York State, and uh, it promises to uh, open up people's right to bear arms, open carry, and so on, outside of the home. And national legislation may supersede state legislation. So it's gotten very bad. And the problem is basically that Uh, Starting in about the 1970s, maybe you could even go back to 1964 with Barry Goldwater, a very conservative Republican candidate. Um, The Republicans have become more and more gun crazy and they've been aided, abetted by National Rifle Association, a lobby that has had a heyday. Now it has some troubles, some internal troubles uh, because of their own political problems. But uh, this is an organization that strikes fear into the hearts of all legislators and executive branch members, not only on the national level, but uh, state level as well. And so this National Rifle Association in tandem with the Republicans have basically gone all in for less and less gun control. So uh, the professor mentioned a a few minutes ago that uh, he couldn't uh, own a gun in Chicago because he's a foreigner well this is very interesting because you have so many laws in america that require people to get permits for things like driving a car or buying cigarettes or uh, alcoholic beverages usually the age is 21 but in the last uh, two big shootings uh, before the one in tulsa the shooters were 18 years old and they had their guns uh, legally and so uh they were of legal age so this is a, a problem in america and it's still moving in the wrong direction and i fear uh, i really fear for what's happening uh, if you look at the statistics america has 120 firearms per 100 people and america despite uh, having four percent of the world's population made up 31 percent of all public mass shootings globally between 1966 and 2012. Um, there's certainly something wrong with this picture. And uh, it doesn't seem to me, maybe, uh, maybe the other colleagues have a different idea, but it doesn't seem to me that any meaningful gun control or gun safety legislation is going to be passed even now, even after these people were killed, these children, were poor, innocent children were killed.
3: Yeah. Um, it's like every time a, a mass shooting happens, there will be a round of discussion on gun law uh, reforms. People will you know, say enough is enough. Then we'll, we'll see flags fly at uh, half mass for the victims of the shooting and then um, prolonged debate with no substantial action actually from the government. Then uh, comes another mass shooting and the cycle goes on. Well, it seems things remain stuck in in, in one position. But some people always argue that gun ownership is America's deeply entrenched culture developed through history and uh, protected by the Constitution. Um, It can never be changed. We'll talk about the NRA later. But uh, David, how persuasive do you think such an argument is to you? It's entrenched culture.
1: As Harvey was uh, was was getting at uh, was talking about, there has become an entrenched uh, a sort of a gun culture, uh, which um, has started out to be more and more polarized. When I was young, a lot of people had guns, but the gun divide was not so much along you know uh, political party lines. It was more has had to do with rural culture versus urban culture in some ways because for the countryside uh, and farming land and stuff uh, you know people have uh, have hunting rifles they hunt they hunt they also use rifles to shoot you know foxes or wolves that invade the farmlands and things like that so guns have always been part of rural culture what's happened is that as harvey was alluding to you know in the constitution the second amendment guarantees the right to bear arms but it's a bit vague, and it's always been controversial exactly what they were talking about, which group would have the right to bear arms and what is meant by arms. They refer specifically to uh, a well-regulated militia, which is, as Harvey said, a a sort of a, a national guard or uh, you know a, a local a militia group. It's still controversial. Some people say that that is that is what it meant at the time, and it was never a guarantee of the individual right for people to, collect and and own as many arms as they want. So it has been twisted over the years by partly by court rulings and partly by the NRA and the gun lobby. Uh, the problem now is that there is like two very polarized sides to the to the gun debate. One is the Republicans and the GOP and the right wing who, who are sort of in, in, in sort of a intellectual slavery to a kind of a gun culture with, in which the that second amendment right is like almost like a religion. Or almost like a cult, I would say, and they're very, very self-identifying. It's part of their personal identity. So you have the that side, which is actually a minority. If you do, if you look at polling, most Americans are in favor of uh, sensible gun control and, and even some gun control measures that are deemed radical and invasive by the gun uh, lobby. So it's basically uh, the NRA, a small group not a small group but i mean you know 20 30% maybe of of americans who are very very attached to the guns and then basically de- depending on which question you're dealing with 70 80 80% maybe even 90% of the american public is in favor of sensible gun laws that have been known in fact to reduce these mass shootings and other gun crimes which is background checks uh, a waiting period which the brady bill for a while that that was under the clinton administration i think Uh, was able to able to reduce the number of handguns in society. And then also things like uh, lowering the age, I mean, raising the age limit for buying a gun, and then also restricting the kind of very destructive military style assault rifles that are now being sold and manufactured by hundreds of manufacturers now sold on the market. So it's a huge problem because that's, that minority of entrenched gun lovers holds an incredible influence in Congress because uh, basically it's, the case has been for the last 10, 20 years even that if you go against the gun lobby, you lose the next election because they are very, very focused and they're very good at, at messaging. So the problem now is we've got sort of most of America held hostage to a relatively smaller group of gun enthusiasts and and gun-crazy people at the NRA who will not bend, who will not cede one inch of territory for any gun control whatsoever. In fact, they're going in the wrong direction. And that's the tragedy right now, is that we could do something, but nothing will get through Congress no matter what the death count, because uh, it's so entrenched. And it's not going to happen now. Even now, there are the Republicans are trying to get away from it and trying to change the subject and waiting until this blows over and the, and the pressure will be off them. So it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy.
2: The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
3: But, um, you know, the U.S. is a democracy. And if the majority of the people support stricter gun control, why is it so hard to push forward any, you know, um, stricter measures? Dr. Zhao, from your perspective, is it um, not so persuasive?
2: Well, first of all, let's say uh, the U.S. is not a direct democracy. If you have a referendum, and according to polls, that, you know, overwhelming proportion of Americans supporting gun control, of course, you can have good outcomes. However, the U.S. democracy is not really working like that. It's uh, a balance from the very beginning uh, between a a pure democracy, a direct democracy, and also uh, between those and state individual state rights. So in a way, the modern American uh, politics give leverage to those states, particularly rural states, uh, that does not have a lot of people, however, holds unproportional, like over their their proportion of number of uh, congressmen and also particularly senators. So in that respect, uh, I think NRA and other political groups supporting gun ownership uh, and blocking any gun control measures found a way to uh, use those leverage and to secure support of those congressmen and senators to at any point be able to block any uh, aggressive gun control laws uh, passing congress so i think that's very much uh, a you know flaw or disease in american democratic system however it's very hard to to change that's not only related to gun control issues but related to a lot more many other issues that even though popular to american people but not necessarily being able to get legislation Uh, But I want to emphasize here uh, uh, on two points about the uh, gun violence in the United States. Because number one, just mere gun ownership is not the fundamental problem. Because in many ways, the U.S. can compare with other countries, smaller countries like Switzerland or bigger countries like Australia. They also have widespread gun ownership. And in Switzerland, I think per capita gun ownership is probably on um, bar with the United States. So in a way, you know, owning gun does not necessarily give rise to mass shooting like the United States, particularly in elementary schools, shooting children. So we have to find another way to explain this phenomenon. I think one thing uh, that uh, I think David touched upon is these uh, use of automatic weapons. And actually US law prohibited Uh, civilians to own automatic weapons so you have to modify the the design to sell that uh, sort of AR-15 model to a civilian however you can easily get around that regulation by buying some mechanism that can keep the gun shooting so this gives for that actually you can see that from the case of mass shooting in Las Vegas a couple of years ago Uh, and after that people realized that even though as long as you have those guns on the market, you can't really get rid of those automatic shooting mechanism by just taking care of the small things on those guns. That's number one thing. So this widespread of military level uh, firepower popular to the United States people, that's very much a problem. That actually gives the uh, criminals the opportunity to shoot defenseless people in a massive way and killing very efficiently. That is why there's increasing number of mass shooting in the United States in the past 20 years. If you look at the numbers prior to, I think, 1990s, even though there are shootings in the United States, however, the killing rate is not as high as today's mass shootings, uh, particularly in schools. Another thing is very important to to consider, which is motive. I think in the U.S. society, if you, you, you mentioned gun culture. I think there's another culture of violence, and that culture is uh, much more problematic in the United States than in European countries. Even though other countries have gun ownership as well, but mostly they use guns for recreational or self-defense. But in the U.S., because some of the the violence culture created by like computer games, like wars, permanent wars overseas, and also there are uh, many people who are related to the use of uh, mass shooting weapons they tend to use that and they watch tv full of violence and they particularly young people having all those information digested and they want to learn from that and try to replicate those cases so that's i think very much a culture that encouraged the young people to practice mass shooting when they're upset when they have psychological problems when they can't resolve their own problems when they wanted to blame society so I think without addressing this fundamental social economic problem and coupling with the widespread automatic weapon ownership that created a soil in the United States to contribute to this increasing more and more numbers of mass shooting particularly harming children
3: so you're saying mere gun control or stricter gun control measures are not enough to yeah. to prevent such a mass shooting, the increase of mass shootings. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And uh, the media, social media, and uh, probably the culture industry has got a lot of efforts to make. Harvey, you were previously from the ABC TV network. What's your interpretation here?
0: Well, it brings to mind so many things. But yes, the media contributed to this problem, and this is even before stations like uh, Fox uh, News were founded in America, uh, because we used to have some legal doctrine called the Fairness Doctrine, which required controversial issues of public importance to have a balanced viewpoint. And I remember at ABC, I had to go out and find people on other sides of issues and give them free time if they couldn't afford it to state their uh, point of view in, in advertising. But I think one of the big problems of the media is that we sanitize violence. So I was listening to a report uh, the other day uh, on CNN by one of their doctors who was talking about how these assault rifles like the AR-15 is so powerful that... It can blow somebody's face away, basically, or can shoot off somebody's arm. I mean, it's really horrific. But I've always tended to sanitize violence so you don't see the blood and guts. And it's a debate that's uh, always being waged because it's gruesome to see these things. But it's more realistic and it doesn't glorify the situation and i want to go back to something uh, both of my colleagues r- referred to indirectly and to talk about it this assault rifle thing that the reason that this 2008 case was passed by the conservative majority was that it was led by uh, justice antonine Scalia, who had a reputation for being a very nice guy but extremely conservative and he was the proponent of something called originalism. When I went to Harvard Law School, and I was taught by people like Justice Breyer, uh, we were told that the Constitution was a living document that would adjust to the time and be a document for all seasons. But under Scalia and the conservatives, they have a doctrine now, which is called originalism. And originalism means you have to decide cases as though it was the late uh, 18th century. And so that's how this case was decided. But it g- just goes to show that, as I was taught <laughs> when I was very young, that figures don't lie, but liars can figure. Because you could, or like uh, was uh, written, I think in Alice in Wonderland, that words uh, mean whatever I choose them to mean. And, and by that, I'm saying that, okay, if we're deciding cases based on 18th century environment and situation, the state of the art for guns then were these single shot guns that had to be reloaded, like my friend had, is the place in Wisconsin. But take an AR-15. This is very powerful. It you can fire dozens of clips of ammunition and much more lethal. So if Justice Scalia and his fellow conservatives were true to the Constitution and not true to the big money funding conservatives, he should have held that there are guns and there are guns and you have to make a distinction between, uh, let's say, a a single fire uh, weapon and one that can fire multiple bullets, multiple uh, rounds. And so this is one of the reasons that our country is so disunited and why I call it the untied states of America, because we're really heading in the wrong direction, and guns is a major part of this.
3: Mm. And, uh, yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Why can't, you know, the Constitution uh, evolves with, uh, you know, times? David, previously you said uh, the country, or Americans were are held hostage by lobbyist groups like uh, NRA. And, um, you know, how... Influential, do you think it actually is um, in American people's daily lives, and did American people expect it to be so powerful or influential like it is today?
1: Well, Professor Zhao, you know, laid out that problem a little bit. I mean, the really problem now is getting anything passed is the Senate, and the Senate, of course, is uh, every state is allotted to senators regardless of their of the population. And I think in in the good old days before uh, there was so much of a a move towards urbanization, um, this sort of made sense to let population density higher states uh, not have the advantage over the other states. The problem now is that the more conservative states, the the sort of rural culture that is part and parcel more of the gun lobby, are, are overrepresented. And so those races can tend to be hotly contested. And the candidates very much have to depend on NRA money, which is direct money from the NRA and from, from other donors who support the NRA, but then also it's just from the voters who have very strong feelings about gun culture and the fact that they don't want people to, to take away the guns. So the, the NRA is very, very good at, at spending money, at lobbying, and they're also good at messaging. So every time there's a shooting like this and they say, why don't we... Uh, uh, cut down, or 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 you know, uh, to make illegal the sale of these these military-style weapons. The the NRA message is they want to take your guns. They you know don't let them take the guns of law-abiding citizens. And the message is an existential one. It's that they just want to to confiscate all your guns. They want to get rid of guns. That's not the case. It's like saying um, that enacting speed limits and seatbelt laws. And safety regulations for automobiles means that we want to take away your car, <laughs> but of course that's not true. We just want to make it. We just want to make automobiles safer and driving safer. And the same is true with the gun laws. But that logic is completely lost on the the voters and on the populace because they very quickly assert the, this message. Now, the other thing is you've you've seen what happens in Congress. They're beholden to the gun lobby. They. I'm sure that they do not want death on this scale. It's not that they're monsters to that de- degree, but they are so beholden to this lobby and they also are fixated on a genuine kind of occultish attachment to this the Second Amendment and to this sacred right of gun ownership, even though that's not what's being threatened. But the the so the so what happens is gun legislation can pass the House of Representatives and it can pass in some states loc- locally, but when it gets to the Senate, they die. They either get died or they get attenuated. And right now you're seeing that exact same thing. Mitch McConnell, whose job it will be to see if any leg- legislation gets put on for a vote in the Senate, has said, we're looking now for a compromise to make uh, this situation better. We're looking at school safety and mental health. So those may be parts of the problem the, to, you know, to harden the schools, they say, or increasing, you know, mental health uh, for people who have mental health problems and young people, especially. But there is a problem with these assault weapons and also the lack of background checks and all sorts of things that are widely supported. But, but if you hear what Mitch McConnell said, the implication there is we are not going to, sit to consider any legislation that restricts gun ownership and distribution in any way whatsoever and there's nothing literally nothing that that we Americans can do about that process right now except to complain about it and hopefully it you know wake up someday and quit voting these people into office but right now at this point in american history and in the political history it's just impossible it's just an impasse because of this dynamic that i hope We've, we've we've made clear to the listeners,
3: Dr. Zhao. Why do you think it's uh, so hard to crack it open the system? Um, does it mean there is American people can't do, like uh, David just said, can do nothing about it?
2: I want to emphasize here: there's a moral issue at hand, which is that you know um, individualism is quite widely held in the United States, and because of this. Sometimes extreme individualism, people who own guns only think about themselves. And because mass shooting and, you know, this kind of violence, on the one hand, is quite constant in the U.S. society. However, on the other hand, it's not very often to have these cases of mass shooting. So when people are thinking about these kind of issues, it's not like almost every day everybody is under the threat of gun shooting. So the solution, of course, those people who are against uh, tightening gun control will have the opportunity to find other excuses. They can create other scenarios, for instance, to say, okay, if there's a threat of mass shooting, then why don't we give more people more guns? They're suggesting to train teachers, to equip teachers with guns in classrooms. They're supporting to increase guards and also increase uh, you know, more people to equip guns in public spaces, uh, like concealed carrying. So there are many cases actually in the United States right now, right after that shooting in a school, uh, I think a couple of days later, there's another case when there's a guy threatened to shoot through a party. And then a woman actually showed up and with a gun killed the shooter.
3: Mm, that makes so a good excuse they use
2: this kind of cases mm. good excuse to say okay yeah let's just uh, you know buy more guns actually every time there's mass shooting if you check the numbers you realize that is very good for sales because at that time people are thinking the only way out is actually buy more guns to defend myself again but, mm. this is based on individualism, not a collective solution they just wanted to say I'm just I just need to secure myself. I don't need to care about other people's problems.
3: But do you think uh, the public actually buy such kind of uh, argument or was it just infused into people's mind by best interest groups like uh, the NRA and uh, and exemplified the voice exemplified by, you know, media?
2: Well, the media played very much a critical role in this. Because the media is divided, uh, as Harvey has pointed out. Fox News is promoting one agenda, one narrative. And CNN and other uh, liberal media is pushing another. So when there's a conflict, it's becoming political. It's not like people wanted to find a rational, common-sense solution. It's now becoming do-or-die sort of uh, issue. So again, I think in America media, what things have been portraited or presented is very problematic on the one hand uh, during the news like every time there's mass shooting you don't see the bloody image you don't see the how people are suffering maybe you know some politicians will come come out and pray for the family however on the other hand if you go to a movie theater if you you, if you play video games there's very bloody image all over the place very realistic however people are thinking that's entertaining so I think in, within this environment, particularly young people growing up in this environment, on the one hand, they appreciate violence and, and you know, the using of guns, and they have the very loose environment to cultivate that culture. But on the other hand, after shooting, people are basically having sanitized information as if this is not something that, you know, really horrific and really should be condemned. So again, I think for political purposes, economic purposes, these kind of activities are so divisive in American society. can't have a unified solution in U.S. Congress. Again, without federal action, only local actions cannot get things done. Because we have the experience in the United States when, for instance, um, city level, municipal level, or individual state level, pass law, but then later get overturned in the Supreme Court. So I think Right now, whatever uh, process that, you know, people who are advocating more control of guns is not working. I think they need to change tactic to find a new way to get this done. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
3: If things are like what you, all of you just said, um, gun control or stricter rules are hard to achieve. Then there comes this concern. Is America becoming militarized or becoming militarist state? Harvey, do you have such concerns?
0: Well, I mean the devil's in the details and in the definition, but I believe it's become an armed state. So we talked about the statistics earlier that there's enough guns for every man, woman and child in America and then some. This number is hugely out of proportion to any other country. I think the second most uh, country that has uh, the highest number of arms per capita is Yemen, and they're going through a civil war. I guess you could say on a different plane, the Americans are going through a civil war as well. And it's a civil war that we've been fighting since the beginning of our country's history in trying to form a government and in trying to uh, do a balance between individual state rights and federal rights and we haven't solved that yet but it seems like the forces of white supremacy who are the ones who uh, by and large control the guns and gun manufacturers and so on are having a heyday now so I'd say the United States, yeah, it's an armed camp. It's out of control. And what the Republicans are proposing in terms of uh, gun control is like putting a, a Band-Aid, of a plaster on a gaping AR-15 wound. It's just not going to work. The country is really uh, coming apart.
3: And uh, David, your opinion here, do, do you have any fears that uh, your home country you know once a dragon slayer become an evil dragon
1: <laughs> well that, that makes me think of uh, the people who are who are uh, the china china threat people the people that are against china we call them dragon slayers <laughs> i don't think that's what you meant but it made me think of that
3: but <laughs> no
1: uh, yeah Harvey's right i mean there is there is an armed there's an arms problem you know that everything there there's a a not insignificant contingency of Americans who think that the government is a possible threat. They distrust government. They're only concerned with their personal freedoms and personal rights to have guns. And they're also enthralled to lots of conspiracy theories, uh, QAnon, which is this crazy conspiracy organization, and lots of the, the paranoid ravings of people on not just Fox News, but on even crazier Uh, media channels uh, like the, uh, what's his name? Uh, Can't think of the name right now, but anyway, the the conspiracy nut who has a huge following. And it's causing this, uh, yeah, and what's in effect is a kind of a a civil war. It's not not militarization because um, the army per se or the military has very little to do with it, in fact. I mean, that's a separate thing. And even the arms that they use are not the arms that the ordinary citizens are are buying. But what's happening is that um, more and more people are feeling that they are threatened and their liberties are threatened. And uh, there's a vilification of the opposite side so that rather than just uh, being Republicans and Democrats or right and left, there's like two tribes that are at war with each other and they see no common ground and no common patriotism and and national bonding with the other side. The other side are evil enemies which must be crushed at, at all costs. And that's especially among the white supremacists and the extreme right. And so there are people who are gearing up for some kind of a civil war or a, a, sort of a, a mass uprising, sort of, because they feel agree- grievances that are they're mostly illusory. So it, it is a sick country. Our democracy is kind of broken, our systems are broken. Trump single-handedly broke our voting system basically it's it's just dysfunctional right now because of his his uh, mass falling and, and so it is a very very big problem and it has to do with the violence that coalesces around the gun obsession and um, yeah I'm pessimistic right now. I don't see any obvious way out of it. The other lie that the NRA tells is that every time uh, you point out that just reducing the guns is not going to make mass shootings go away, they take that as an as an opportunity to say, therefore, it's not worth doing. So it's again, it's a little bit like saying, well, seatbelts don't guarantee that you won't die in a car crash. So may, they're no good. We don't need them. Throw them away. No, we need lots of different restrictions on guns at all levels none of them will stop all the violence but we need to get moving in that direction and it's and it's moving in the opposite direction gun access is freer and more open than it's ever been and it's going to get even more so so there's no light at the end of this tunnel i'm afraid
3: Mm, um, David is not so optimistic. And uh, Dr. Zhao, we've been talking about this um, NRA. Yes, we've mentioned um, President Eisenhower's warning against this military-industrial complex. It seems we haven't touched upon this complex uh, during our conversation. But it does have close relationship with um, such organizations as the NRA, because the guns that killed those children are, are, are manufactured by American companies that deeply ingrained in the U.S. military-industrial complex. And uh, those two, I think it, they are very closely related. If this kind of um, vicious cycle continues like this, what will it mean You know, to, to the rest of the world? It's not just limited to... The United States itself.
2: Well, first of all, I, I want to set this apart. It's not a it's not a one problem, uh, and particularly the military-industrial complex deals with American foreign policy, and American military. And just now, I think uh, Harvey pointed out that the military is a different story, even though these two are linked, but in a in a cultural way and in some mechanism, and particularly weapon transfer. Uh, to, uh, you know, increase police force Mm -hmm. and militarize police force. And actually in the past 20 years, because of the extra supply of weapons, particularly, uh, you know, special armed, special forces weapons, those weapons can equip more SWAT teams throughout the United States. So you you saw an explosion of SWAT teams uh, throughout the United States and heavy armored policemen showing up on the street and sometimes using extra force to deal with just normal cases. So in a way, that's why I think people, sometimes people on the left, are trying to defund police and trying to argue that the police use of force is extreme. In many cases, we saw from the United States, that police shooting sometimes uh, unarmed people to death. But I want to say that you know I, I sort of disagree with david harry on this i don't think that gun violence uh, is the number one or the very sign of civil war uh, or uncontrollable i think gun problem is a serious problem but right now if you rank the problem in the united states probably gun is not the number one or top three even problem in the united states i mean many other factors kills more americans than this gun uh violence and the gun violence is limited i mean if you look at the statistics gun violence is quite limited to colored communities poor communities because when you have heavy police presence normally you have reduced gun violence and when you don't have the money to support that kind of police surveillance then you have more violence uh, using guns so that's that's the uh, issue i want to argue and in terms of military industrial complex It's very much related to this Cold War growth or establishment of the military-industrial complex, when uh, President Eisenhower mentioned, because there's a huge difference between the pre-war U.S. industries and post-war, particularly Cold War, I mean, World War II, uh, post-war military industrial sort of industrialization. And when the industries are closely related to the development, the manufacturing, the production you know and also the research with the the whole economy with every step of the industry you created a monster the monster actually have a huge influence in congress in in the pentagon uh, you know throughout the military and they're closely intertwined and become a symbiotic sort of uh bi- that create this synergy uh to reinforce each other on the one hand you have uh, the, the politicians and military service people can go through this so called uh, you know rounding this turning doors from one side to the other into the company and getting high paid jobs and then on the other hand these people will donate money and will have sort of extra support to the politicians uh, to get what they want so that's why you have ever increasing military expenditure that goes into the military industrial complex that right now is spreading throughout the United States. Like for instance just you know F35 the airplane is made in 46 of the 50 states in the United States. That means you have so many congressmen that have to support this project cannot afford to lose this project because in their district you have so many workers related to and their jobs are on the line related to this project. So again uh, through this kind of w- what we can call a political engineering, uh, you have a iron triangle among the interests of the politicians and military and the contractors, and it's very hard to shake them right now. They need to fight a permanent war, and that's why they need to constantly try and going out there and seeking for a potential enemy. And right now, of course, everybody can see that the U.S. is painting China as a threat, exaggerating China's. Capabilities And using that as an excuse to increase more and more military expenditure in the United States continues to support big budget military hardware and supporting uh, throughout the economy so that the money is going round and round supporting the system.
3: Right. And Harvey, what kind of uh, like spillover hmm? effect do you expect uh, it will have on other countries where you think it well?
0: Will- I, I'm not sure that it will have that much of a spillover effect on other countries because uh, you have many industrial, uh, military industrial complexes in many other countries, including China, France and others. So uh, military arms sales to other countries is, is big business in a number of countries. And uh, I don't think that that's going to go away. But as to the military industrial complex in America, I think it's very interesting that it was uh, Dwight Eisenhower who in January uh, 1961, uh, and I remember watching that broadcast, I'm so old, and watching that black and white broadcast where he talked about this. Here's a former uh, five-star American general, the epitome of the military uh, and having been involved for so long, warning the country about this military-industrial complex that does not pursue national interest or international interest, but only pursues its own selfish interest to, to make money. And I think what we see going on in, uh, in Ukraine at the moment, for example, is partly the military-industrial complex being to test out its new toys in actual battle conditions. And so they're very pleased, and they're very pleased to push this, and they're very pleased to make a, a mountain out of the mohill of U.S.-China relations, for example. So they're all for creating the fear uh, that their war is just around the corner when it isn't. And I believe that the Americans now, especially with the talk about democracies versus autocracy, which is a false distinction, really, if you look at it in detail, I believe uh, that that is impacting America's allies because America is twisting arms very strongly uh, of its allies. And so, yeah, maybe there will be a spillover effect uh, in that respect.
1: Yeah, I I I think uh, Jaha and Harvey sort of explained it, you know, mm. very well. I do think that money is at the heart of all of this. Whether you're talking about the NRA, whether you are talking about the gun manufacturers, the fact the fact that this this AR-15 that's so popular now is being manufactured, uh, I think, according to the author of a new book on the subject, by a, an author who is actually in the gun industry for many years. He said there are there are something like 500 companies some very small and some very large that are engaged in the manufacturing of ar-15s of all different parts you know of different uh, styles and makes and models of various uh, levels of deadliness and i think that's money if you want to know the problem is it all has to do with money and a lot of people are making a lot of money off of all the pain and suffering that the that people are going through not just in the U.S. and all over the world. So that's just my summing up of the problem.
3: Right. Actually, I truly don't know how to wrap this up, but I just hope, um, be it the gun lobbyist groups or uh, the military-industrial complex, they can have more long-term visions and slow down their steps towards um, militarizing either this nation or the rest of the world because that's to the benefit of of the country's children and all its um, nationals. And with that, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Harvey Zodin, um, former vice president of ABC TV network, David Moser, associate professor at Beijing Capital Normal University, Dr. Zhao Hai, research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. And you can leave a review for us either on the topic or or on the show, please subscribe to The Chat Lounge for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Tuyin. Thanks for listening. We'll talk next week.
2: Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you there.